I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, science broadcaster Dallas Campbell brings us an illustrated guide to leaving the planet in his new book, Ad Astra. Dallas Campbell is a broadcaster who has presented some of television's best-known science and technology programmes, including The Gadget Show, Van Gogh's The Theory, The Sky at Night and Stargazing Live. His documentaries have taken him all over the world and include the engineering series Supersized Earth, the aviation series City in the Sky, Voyager to the Final Frontier and The Drake Equation, The Search for Life. In 2017, he was awarded the Sir Arthur Clarke Centenary Media Award for his work in popularising space and he's an honorary fellow of the British Science Association. And Dallas is also the author of Ad Astra, an illustrated guide to leaving the planet, which is obviously what we're going to be talking about today. Dallas, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. So what's the idea behind the book? Well, I was sitting in the British Interplanetary Society Library. I'm a member of the British Interplanetary Society. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's, down, no. it's behind Vauxhall, and it's this kind of quite nondescript building. But along the top, in big letters, big sort of plastic letters, it mm-hmm. says British Interplanetary Society. And I remember for years walking past it all the time and going, what are goes on in there? Because it sounded like some kind of cult, yeah. the British Interplanetary Society. And of course, what it is, it's the world's, it's not a cult, but mm. it's kind of a cult. What it is, it's the world's oldest space society. It's been going since 1933. And people meet and discuss how to leave the planet, basically. All kinds of different aspects of space travel. Arthur C. Clarke, who you just mentioned there, was the honorary, you know, was one of the presidents of it. All of his work, which listeners will be familiar with, are kind of reflected in stuff. And they've got this library there, which has got every conceivable book on space travel, rocketry, history of space. They've got all the flight logs for every space mission, all the Apollo missions. You go in there and you're anyone who knows anything about space or if you're interested in, in that particular part of history, it's just jaw-dropping. And I sort of thought, wow, that's an ama- what an amazing collection of books. What I wanted to do is, I still couldn't leave because I'd start reading one book and then my eyes would be drawn across the shelves to something else and I'd pull that down and, oh my God, they've got the original log for photographs of Mariner 4. And then I sort of had to look at And I thought, actually, what I need to do is somehow take all these thousands and thousands of books and condense them into one mm-hmm. small, handy, pocket-sized volume. So that was, that was it. And also... Douglas Adams. There was a... I can't remember which Hitchhiker's book it was. I think it was a sort of later incarnation of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, one of the books. I remember he did a thing called How to Leave the Planet. It was Mm -hmm. like a five-point plan. Number one was call NASA, and it had the NASA phone number. Number two was like, call the Pope. And I remember number five was, uh, if all else fails, flag down a passing flying saucer. Mm -hmm. And I just liked that structure, How to Leave the Planet. So I I kind of borrowed that and basically expanded it. And I kept the flying saucer bit at the end. Mm -hmm. So part five is How to Get Abducted by Aliens. So that's it. It's a real mixtape I suppose of different stories and, and uh, history and culture as, as much as science as well as that structure the book also has a more realistic little sort of tick list of how to be an astronaut well that's that. it's a really impractical guide I can't think <laughs> of a more impractical guide of leaving the planet I mean the conceit of the book mm. is it's a guide to leave the planet so that the way it's structured is it's a guide so what do you wear what do you mm. eat what do you pack that kind of stuff but I don't actually tell you Tim Peake's book will tell you mm-hmm. my book will tell you the story of that thing, whether it's food or clothing or rockets or politics or law, whatever it is. And also the book is punctuated. I sort of, I'd get bored with my own voice as I got started writing. So I drafted in a few people those little pop-up chapters. So 
I've got an astronaut for mm. his views on things. I've got the head of a, the European Space Agency. I've got Beth Healy, who is a, an ESA medical doctor who, who spends time doing analogue missions in, in mm-hmm. Antarctica. So people within the space community, not just astronauts, to give their reflections on, on leaving the planet. So a little bit of conceit, definitely, and they're holding it together. I should mention that entirely coincidentally, or perhaps I should pretend it isn't, it is today the uh, 60th anniversary since Sputnik took off, and, and the book kicks off with you at the Baikonur Cosmodrome over in Kazakhstan, there for a launch, basically. Tell us what that place is and what goes on there. I love it. I've been there a couple of times now. And the Baikonur Cosmodrome, was the, it's the place where Sputnik was launched from. Uh, and it was, it's a big, was a mm-hmm. big Soviet military base. And the thing is that people forget or, or don't know is that the rocket that launched Sputnik was the first intercontinental ballistic missile called the R-7. And it was designed to throw a nuclear warhead across and land on America. So it was a top-secret base. In fact, at Baikonur, it's not actually called... It is called Baikonur, but the actual town of Baikonur was somewhere else. It was, called, mm-hmm. it was That place was renamed Baikonur to sort of confuse the enemy. But it was a top-secret base. And then it became the centre of spaceflight for the Soviet Union, and it still is. So I went over there for Tim Peake's launch and, and a launch before that. And I'm on the launch pad... Right there, looking at the Soyuz rocket, which is just an R-7 intercontinental ballistic missile. You know, it comes mm. out horizontal from the big shed, just like a <laughs> missile, and it goes up on its end vertically, and then up it goes. But that launch pad is the same launch pad that Sputnik was launched from, mm-hmm. on the same rocket, the same launch pad that Laika the dog, that Yuri Gagarin, that Valentina Tereshkova, that mm-hmm. Helen Sharman. The whole history of space has come full circle. From the 1950s all the way to now, we still use the same rocket, and that... That place is the only bus stop to space as we speak right now. Mm-hmm. There is no other vehicle on Earth that can get you into space from anywhere else. Since they've retired the space shuttle, that yeah, is exactly. literally the only place. That's it. So all the Americans go there. And that's the thing. You talk to astronauts now, and it's what's the hardest thing about going to space? Learning Russian. Because you've got to learn Russian now. All the astronauts have to be able to speak Russian because Russian is the mm-hmm. is the language of Soyuz. It's the language of... Uh, human spaceflight. So what goes on on the day when there's a launch? There's lots of little sort of funny rituals that happen. Yeah, well, there's endless rituals. And again, you know, your astronauts will will tell you all this. And they start, you know, from all the way through training, there are little rituals. But there is the signing of the door. Mm -hmm. You know, that all the astronauts sign a particular door in a Sharpie pen. There's a planting of a tree at Baikonur, at the Cosmodrome. There's a row of trees and they plant little saplings all the cosmonauts and astronauts have the little tree and then there's the watching of the film there is a, a the film white sun of the desert there is a particular song this rock song from the 1980s um by a band who the name is earthlings the translation mm-hmm. of earthlings which you know talks about leaving the planet and as they come out of the hotel in the morning when they go to get suited up ready to go to the launch pad this music blares and it's the so there's this ritual the soviets the russians i should say are incredibly superstitious, particularly mm-hmm. when it comes to Gagarin, who is the first, of course, when they're on the bus in their spacesuits driving out to the launch pad, which is called Gagarin Start. They stop and they get out and they undo their flies and they have a pee against the tyre of the bus because that's what Yuri did. And mm-hmm. if, Yuri, if it's good enough for Yuri, it's good enough for them. The day before the launch, all the media gather by the rocket and witness the blessing of the rocket. So a Russian... This big Russian bearded priest comes with holy water and the Soyuz rocket on the launch pad is temporarily an altar and they have this religious ceremony and they bless it with holy water and then the priest comes and blesses all the media and, and it's a it's an extraordinary thing. And when we think of I don't know, when we think of spaceflight, most people think of American spaceflight. Most people think of silver spacesuits and Corvettes mm-hmm. and or Buck Rogers and high tech and actually the reality is something really quite peculiar <laughs> and superstitious. And it says a lot about the human condition, about how religion is still very much part of it. It comes from this people like Tsiolkovsky, the, 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 the Russian humanists, uh, the, the transhumanists, I should say, whose whole notion, again, like, like Arthur C. Clarke, was human beings leaving the cradle and mm-hmm. becoming part of the cosmos. And somehow that rather florid and interesting set of ideas is still there, even in our scientific age. We're talking about a set of florid ideas. You mentioned, obviously, the British Planetary Society was set up in 1933, and that was obviously way before we actually were able to to go to space, and they were thinking about it. But people had been thinking about it for centuries before that, hadn't you? List some of the very, very early people that actually posited the idea of leaving the planet and going somewhere. How would they have gone? Yeah, well, very exotic, but completely sensible 
realistic <laughs> ways. Serrano de Bergerac, uh, imagining himself... Well, he looked at dew on the grass and understood when the sun came out, suddenly the dew evaporated mm-hmm. up and like thought to himself, wow, if we can somehow catch that. So there's the story of collecting sort of bottles of dew and strapping them to himself and the process of evaporation would lift him up into the heavens. Uh, we think of science fiction as being a, a relatively modern thing, but it goes way back. Johannes Kepler in his novel Somnium um, imagined great storms that would sort of throw ships up into space. My favourite... Uh, Bishop Francis Goodwin in the 1600s, which, of course, a fascinating time scientifically, mm-hmm. the beginning of the European scientific revolution. He imagined these... Well, he, he wrote this story called The Man in the Moon, Moon with an E at the end, and he had his, his character, Domingo Gonzalez, this diminutive Spaniard, he refers to him as, um, who had this... came across a, a breed of geese these called Ganza, and these geese would migrate between the Earth and the Moon, and he tied them up and... And tied them to his seat, a bit like James and the Giant Peach. Mm-hmm. And off he went to the moon and had this adventure. And on the way, there's this great description of life in space and life on the moon and the new science du jour, the new science of Galileo and Copernicus that was changing the world. I'm Ben Goldacre. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. You talk about where space actually is. Like, yeah. That's a sort of obvious sounding question, but. I say it, it is, is obvious, you know. It's like, <laughs> where is space? I mean, we're in it. <laughs> yeah. But, like, the, you know, the International Space Station is in one place and, you know, the Hubble Telescope is in another place. And obviously yeah. journeying into the moon is another proposition completely. Where does space actually begin? It, well, officially, space begins, and it's, it has changed over time, but the official definition of space is known as the Kármán line, mm-hmm. after the physicist von Kármán, uh, 100 kilometers is the official so if you can go above 100 kilometers you've done it and 100 it's not far from where are we sitting here in near king's cross it's like i don't know south coast like yeah Portsmouth? something like that perhaps it's not far like that's I mean, like 10 quid on the train or eight <laughs> quid or something and yet going, going straight up expensive i know straight going straight like what is the justice in that mm. going up is a lot harder this is yes gravity Getting out of the gravity well is tough, so it's not that it's not that far. I mean, even before we'd officially gone, humans had officially gone into space. Of course, there were things like the X plane, the X fifteen. Mm-hmm. You know, so people had sort of touched it in these rocket rocket powered planes of the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties. But yes, I mean, there's all kinds of slightly fudged definitions. You'll notice people sending balloons with things attached to them with cameras and saying, yeah, like, oh, a pie. You know, like a pie. I put a pie. You know, actually, when I did Bango's The Theory, we did exactly that. We, mm. I made a little miniature version of myself. And I, we did like a £300 space mission. <laughs> 3D printed version of me, which we strapped to a weather balloon and a camera and sent it up. And we called it the edge of space. It's nowhere near the mm. edge of space. You know, it goes up to 100,000 feet, which is nowhere near. <clears throat> you know, yeah, it's not well. 100 miles. It's not, no, exactly. It's, it's, um, it's the top of the atmosphere. You know, you are at the top of the atmosphere, but space is, is a little bit further. Than but that. is that in itself just an arbitrary number, or would how is it well, defined? Is it like where there's you know it's the, the oxygen is so exactly. thin, or is it when you actually start to become weightless? It's a or? bit. It's a bit. Well, you won't become weight. This is another thing as well. The, the weight. We'll come on to that. But it's it's where sort of aeronautics becomes astronautics, mm. where you know wings no longer work. Wings yeah. need air and, and to give you lift. And the air is so thin, obviously, you, you can't use wings anymore. You can't use jet engines. You need a different kind of reaction engine in order to, to move around. But, um, I mean, the weightless thing is interesting because if you went straight up and sort of didn't move, you'd still, if the ISS was not moving, you'd be able to walk on it. Mm-hmm. It's only, you're only weightless because you're falling. You're yeah. falling around the Earth because you're in orbit. So when you go on a roller coaster and you go over the top, you're suddenly weightless and, as it sort of drops down. It's exactly the same thing. And it's the famous analogy of Newton's cannon. Mm-hmm. Newton imagined this cannon on a mountain and the cannonball fires and it makes a, an arc shaped and lands on the Earth. But if you can miss the horizon... Yeah, and just keep going. And just keep going, as long as there's nothing to slow you down, like an atmosphere. So very low orbits, actually talking to Al Warden, you uh, the Apollo astronaut the other day, his actual parking orbit before they went to the moon was quite low. So they only had enough energy to go around a, a few times before the, the molecules of air, even mm-hmm. in the very top of the atmosphere, w- would slow them down and be forced to land. So, yeah, you need to be sort of qu- quite far away. You need to be going pretty quick. Something like Virgin Galactic, of course, you don't, you're not going in orbital speeds. You, you, you sort of jet up, cross the Kármán line, do a nice little arc, you're weightless for a couple of minutes, mm-hmm. everyone's happy, and down for a glass of champagne. Technically, mm-hmm. you've been in space, and I think that's you know that's what you want. You've done your moment of weightlessness, but it's not about there's not enough gravity. Yeah, 
there is gravity, even even halfway to the moon, you're going to feel the effects of Earth's gravity. You mentioned Al Warden there, the, the Apollo astronaut, and regular listeners to the show will remember me talking to him last year. There's a scene you just talked about. He's Al's, such a lovely he's guy. The, he's the nicest guy. He's, such a he's in the book as well. I do a terrific interview with him. He's an absolute legend. And um, there's a scene in this book where you, you, you take the poor guy on a roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I forgot about that. Oh my, yeah. It was, yeah, it was this time last year, it was World Space Week. And Al was the guest of honour at Alton Towers because he was going to open this new virtual reality roller coaster. Oh my God, it was hilarious. And uh, due to some, I don't know, it was a PR cock up. And I think they got the date wrong. No one came. It was just me and Al on our own. And no one turned up for the great opening of this virtual reality roller coaster, which is a space themed roller coaster. Mm-hmm. So just so listeners know, you're on a roller coaster, you put your VR helmet on, and they play a kind of, you're in space, plus you're on a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. But they were like, well, do you want to go on it anyway? And we were like, yeah, okay. So I found myself strapped into a roller coaster with the command module pilot for Apollo 15. I'm like, and I put the head, and I'm in space next to the, on a roller coaster, next to the command module pilot. It's going to be the worst critic. And I'm like, no, but I'm like, this is as close as it's going to get. This is as good as it's going to get for me. And I suddenly felt I'm going to enjoy this, being surrounded by all this engineering, not unlike being on a spacecraft, with considerably more computing power than the... Apollo guidance computer ever had uh, and then off we went on our space adventure and uh, so yeah it was pretty good I'm like okay well that's as close as Apollo as I'm going to get and you both survived it we both survived I were out you know I don't know how old's Al 80 so yeah it something? must be this, yeah. yeah he did a lot better than I he's in a lot better shape than I am I tell you that <laughs> he's a yeah he's a legend you were talking about you know the difference of you know propulsion that's needed for space flight, but let's talk about the very beginning of that, so getting off the ground. So that Soyuz rocket that you yeah. went and saw yeah. launched. Obviously, you know, we can all picture a rocket fire coming out of the end of it. Yeah. How does it actually work? What is it that gets that rocket up to space? Well you've got you've got stages. So rockets so it's not just one big mm-hmm. rocket. And this is one of the the sort of breakthroughs of early rocket engineering. You have a first stage, a second stage and a third stage. So as one lot of fuel goes, the next stage lights as you get higher and propels you higher and higher and higher. But yes, you have a, a combustible fuel. So Soyuz uses a refined kind of kerosene called, oh my God, what's it called? RP-1, I think it is, rocket, RP-1. It's a type of kerosene and an, oxidi- an oxidizer as well, liquid, liquid oxygen. But that first stage, so you have a central core, like a sort of tube with engines, but also four boosters, strap-on boosters that go around it, which push it all up. Because that, that first bit, getting off the pad, you've got all the weight. Yeah. And all the fuel. It's, inc- it's incredibly heavy, even though Soyuz is quite small. But it's an incredibly elegant thing. Those four boosters just slot into these brackets around the core. And the whole thing sits on these arms, these arms which get pulled down with big concrete weights on the end, like a golf ball on a tee. So the weight of the rocket and everything holds them down. So when it becomes weightless, you get lift off and it starts to move. They just fall away. They just Those arms just pivot away and release it and off it goes. Those boosters push it up. And when they run out of fuel... They just drop off. They just fall out of the brackets and fall back down to Earth. Gravity does the job. It'll keep going. And then after another few seconds, that second stage will ignite. That second Mm -hmm. of the rocket, that first stage will fall back to the Earth. And off we go. The fairing will come off. If you imagine the fairing at the front of the rocket cone will come off. As it leaves the atmosphere, you don't need that fairing at the front, Mm -hmm. the sort of pointy bit at the front. And that will come away, revealing the Soyuz spacecraft itself. Uh, And eventually... You know the third stage, and it'll it'll be. I can't remember how many stages are on a story. I have to look it up. That's the same for all. You know, if yeah, you look at the Saturn sure. V, it's a big stack. Yeah. Of, it's a bit like going through the gears. I've heard mm-hmm. that analogy before. You know, the first stage, first gear, build up speed. Second gear, third gear. As you build up speed, that's the that's the sort of best analogy. But yeah, you carry a lot of fuel. It's an expensive business, and obviously, you're carrying a lot of fuel. You're essentially sitting on a a big bomb. You've got to be careful with it. But there are different types of fuel, different types of rockets, something like the Space Shuttle, for example, that big orange fuel tank. Um, and on the side, you'd have SRB solid, solid fuel boosters, so a kind of, almost like a firework. Mm-hmm. You know, once they're lit, that's it. They don't, you can't sort of throttle them up and throttle them down. When those things go, they, you know, they're, they're off. Yeah, so different fuels depending on the different rockets.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Dallas Campbell and we're talking about his book Ad Astra, An Illustrated Guide to Leaving the Planet. And Dallas, in the book you talk about some of the pioneers of rocketry. Some names like Werner von Braun people would be familiar with. But I wanted to talk about Sergei Korolev, who is the um, sort of Russian father of of the Soviet space programme. And we don't necessarily know so much about him because... It was all a secret. It was all a secret. He was known as the chief designer. <laughs> but he was this incredible engineer who, you know, we have to be thankful for. Mm-hmm. Who, who, you know, he was the chief engineer of the R7 and, and Soyuz, well, not Soyuz, but, but that whole sort of family of rockets, if you like, and also Sputnik and also Leica. You know, he was the, the sort of chief architect who all that technology that we still rely on now and still still look at, we, we kind of have him to thank. Mm-hmm. And he is a revered, you know, in Baikonur, there's a great bust of him. Uh, he is the, you know, but no one knew who he was. Mm-hmm. You know, we all knew it's the difference between someone like Werner von Braun in America. So he, after the war, he went over there and kind of became a celebrity. Yeah, yeah. You know, he was working with Walt Disney uh, and Willie Lay and all these people. And he brought the dream of space travel to the masses in the Collier's magazine and the Disney films Man in Space in the 1950s. Suddenly he became the face of space and was a, sh- a showman in mm. a kind of Elon Musky kind of way, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. If you watch those early Disney films, they're amazing. And he's charismatic and he is the doctor with his German ac- accent. And But that's what people like. Korolev, I'm pronouncing his ni- name. I can never pronounce his name probably. <laughs> Korolev. The, the Russian pronunciation is wonderful and I always get it wrong. But yeah, he was a great secret. No one knew who he was. But of course, all the Russian technology at that time was a secret. Nobody knew what was going on. No one knows about the N1 moon rocket, for example. Mm-hmm. When we were, when von Braun's Saturn V was taking us to the moon in the late 60s, the Russians were doing exactly the same thing. They had a, an N1 rocket, another huge, giant rocket. And like the, the Apollo missions, had a, a lunar lander that w- would take one person, uh, but sadly never made it off the launch pad. And, and all, all the launch... All the launches failed, all the test launches mm-hmm. failed. Luckily, there was nobody in them. But I think one of the N1 launches I read was the largest or the loudest non-nuclear explosion of all time. Wow. Or in the top five. I can't quite remember the fact. Some, like, incredibly bizarre fact. But, yeah, it was all hush-hush. No one mm-hmm. knew about Baikonur. <laughs> no one knew about any of these these things, really. And, you know, Sputnik was a... The launch of Sputnik was a secret as well. And it was interesting that because at the time it was the what was called the International Geophysical Year, 1957-1958, where international scientists, this great project, would come together to mm-hmm. explore the world, understand more about how the world works, earth science, and look at the atmosphere and look at the sun, these three things. It was this great push at the time, especially from the Soviets, into Antarctica. And the Americans were trying to, were going to launch Explorer 1 as the first satellite as part of that. You know, they made a big mm-hmm. song and dance about it. And, of course, the Soviets heard about this and thought, well, let's get in a bit quicker. And they got Sputnik up in 57 and Explorer didn't go up until a few months later, at the beginning of 58. And, of course, that was sort of done in relative secrecy. But then once that was launched, everybody could listen in. Everyone that was the knew. Thing. This, well, this was it. It was the starting gun of the space race. And that space race was all about claiming... The high ground, literally the high ground, the moral high ground, the scientific high ground, the, the, tech, literal, the literal high ground. You know, that was our, the red moon, you know, mm-hmm. 19... And now, of course, look, look what we've done. Our whole lives depend on satellites. But, yeah, it was the start of a fascinating time politically. And you had the white heat of that, which led to, obviously, culminated in Apollo and then mm-hmm. drifted into long-duration spaceflight after that. You mentioned Laika, the, uh, the famous Russian space dog. Yeah tragic story of Laika. Yeah. But there was a bunch of other Russian space dogs. There was a lot of space dogs. There was a great roll call of, I can't remember the exact number, but these were dogs that were taken from Moscow uh, and looked after and loved by the by the engineers and the scientists. Um, they're all female, they're all bitches, all female dogs. And, yeah, Laika was, became the, the most famous one, sadly didn't make it, and died a horrific death. Mm-hmm. I mean, an absolute... Tragic death. And that was a secret as well. There was no knowledge of what happened to Laika. I mean, the world knew about Laika. And, of course, that became political capital as well. The Americans mm-hmm. used that as, like, look at these horrific people sending dogs into space. We would never send dogs into space. And the Brits as well, we were absolutely up in arms. It's fine to send monkeys into yeah, space, they killing, obviously. Yeah, they were killing a long roster of monkeys. <laughs> you know, but, again, it depends. You know, our treatment of animals is entirely dependent on your own cultural 
how you see yeah. the world. You know, we we attribute cult our own the Alberts. To... Were they, they were the, the Alberts. Albert. So they were like Albert One, Two, Albert Three, because they were just basically yeah, dying Albert. one after the other. This is it. They were Alberts. They were stuck on V twos <laughs> yeah. and, and, and or sounding various sounding rockets and sent up and and that none of them. I don't think any of the Alberts survived. Um, Ham and Enos, the chimps, did survive, but you know it was, it was tough. Um, like any animal research, it's the canary in the cage. Mm-hmm. The animals throughout science have gone there first but there are still animals in space i mean there are rats and mice and tardigrades mm-hmm. and also anything that can fit in the nose cone of a of a rocket has probably has probably been into space i the, actually the very first biological package ever went into space was some fruit flies i think mm-hmm. on, a, on a v2 in the late 40s well, the one I was not aware of until I read your book was the uh, the Russian Zons mission. I love the Zons. You know, so we always attribute getting to the moon first by the, the Americans, but actually the Russians sent a uh, uh, spacecraft round the moon and back again, uh, Zon 5, uh, before the Apollo, before it was 68, I have to look at the dates, before the Apollo, first Apollo mission round the moon, not the landing, but the Apollo 8, which was this great... The first of the big missions, round, sending human beings around the moon, the first of the time we're not going to land on the moon, but around the moon, the Russians beat them to it, a bit like Sputnik. They sent Zon 5, and inside there were a whole load of animals, but very specifically a pair of Russian steppe tortoises, which just makes me happy, because if you're going to send an animal, send a tortoise. They've got, like, the built-in spacesuit. You know, they're hardy. They don't need much food. They don't, you know, they're just stoic. It just seems so random, though. It's I so know. Funny. There is one photo I couldn't. I wanted to put the photo of the actual tortoises in the book, but I got a photo. Of, but also, it's the first time we see the Earth as, an, as a mm-hmm. complete sphere. We always attribute that to Apollo Eight, but actually, the Zon Five. And the photograph. tortoise was the first thing to see that. Yeah, I don't. I, what, I know, but what did they think? Did they have some like spectacular overview effect? The whole view of the Russian tortoise at that point was the flat horizon of the deserts of Kazakhstan. <laughs> Suddenly they're like, oh my God, it's better than we thought in this sort of Arthur C. Clarke moment. You know, you can imagine thus spake Harustra with the view, bomb, 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 bomb. And then a super intelligent tortoise comes back and lands and exactly. it's a secret. Exactly. I'm amazed the conspiracy theorists haven't got onto Zond 5 yet. <laughs> I think it was tracked by Jodrell Bank. I know Jodrell Bank were tracking quite a lot of <laughs> Soviet things. There was a Russian mannequin sent up. I can't remember which. There was a few Russian mannequins sent up. The, Ivan Ivanovich. <laughs> and I know they, um, Jodrell Bank tracked some of these. And they'd play tape recordings as well to distract the, the Americans. Of, uh, I think there's a tape recording of a, a Russian woman speaking the recipe for borscht or beetroot soup. Who knew that? <laughs> you talk to people about space, they've heard of Buzz Aldrin and they've heard of Tim Peaked. I haven't heard of the Zon 5 tortoises no, generally. I never have. Something, something. And the other thing I wasn't aware of was that um, when we started sending people, so we send Yuri Gagarin, the Soviets get Yuri Gagarin in space. Yeah. But on the way back, he basically abandons the, the capsule and therefore was almost considered not really the first person. Uh, well, failed. yeah, kind of. It's that thing because they, nowadays when the, when the Soyuz capsule lands, it's, it parachutes down very, very slow, but just before it lands, it's got some little retro rockets at the mm-hmm. bottom and they fire it and, and, it t- and it touches down quite gently. It's not, it's quite violent actually, but, but they didn't have that back in the day on, on um, Vostok. Mm-hmm. They had a, an ejection system, so he'd be fired out and he'd parachute down to the ground. Now officially, according to the FAA, you have to officially land with your capsule. <sighs> but, you know, it's like letter of the law or the spirit of the law, and they realise that you're not going to... I mean, he'd been to space. He's that been was to the space. He, I know, he'd been in orbit, for God's sake. <laughs> so they were like, fine, you got it. It's, no, no one kicked up too much of a fuss. But the pedants listened, well, actually, he didn't officially land with his space capsule. I'm Alex Cox, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I want to spend some time talking about, I guess, what it takes to be an astronaut and what yeah. sort of person becomes an astronaut. And in terms of training, first of all, you've already mentioned Beth Healy. You spent some time talking to to Beth, who overwinters in Antarctica. And Antarctica is obviously a place where we can get a sort of replication of what, like, especially long-term spaceflight would be like. Yeah, she's amazing. And actually, historically as well, Antarct- there are these similarities mm-hmm. between Antarctica, particularly the Russians. They were going really into the interior of Antarctica, Vostok base, in, in, in the 1950s at the same time as Sputnik was going up. So Vostok, Vostok. It all means east, mm-hmm. you know, the Vostok base in Antarctica, the Vostok spacecraft. It all part it, that part of the same thing, exploring the terra incognita, 
the kind of blank bits on the map. It, it, there's something rather nice about that. But when you winter in Antarctica, and obviously people go to the, the edges of Antarctica during the summer, scientists will go. But actually in the middle during winter, you can't get in or out. So you have to get there in the summertime. There's only two seasons in Antarctica, winter and summer. You have to get there. And it gets so cold and so dark, you're in pitch black all the time. And it's minus 80, whatever it is. Planes can't come in and out. So you're there forever. And if there's mm-hmm. a problem, then that's it. You're screwed. And and Beth has done that. She's wintered over. She, so she's a European Space Agency medical doctor. Mm-hmm. So that's why she's there. But she's an incredible person, you know, to spend months and months in pitch blackness. And actually, there's a picture that she took, which I put as the centerfold of the book. And it's just her standing there in the middle of the day with this great star field mm. behind her. And it's just pointing at the, pointing. the Milky Way. Yeah, and it's just the most extraordinary image. So I thought that if you wanted to go to space, actually the best place to go is probably down in Antarctica. There's actually a better spot than Concordia Base where she goes to. Um, I, can't, I think it's Dome A or one of these kind of really strange plateaus in the middle of Antarctica where it's quite high, so very rarefied air and also very weatherless. It's in the middle of a weather system, so very, very calm. And I imagined there that you could go there and sort of lie down on the ground in the middle of winter and look up in the sky and that would be the perfect mm-hmm. window into the universe. It would be the, certainly be the last thing you'd ever do because you wouldn't <laughs> make it back. But quite what dramatic. a way to go. What a way to go, it would be. I find it quite... I, I was watching a lot of Herzog when I watched that chat, when I read, wrote that chapter. So I had Herzog's voice in my head going, yes, it would be the last place you will ever go. You spent some time talking about the um, the psychological testing that was done of the original gang of Mercury astronauts, the sort of original pioneers. What did they do? All kinds of things. Well, they didn't really know because then it's like, well, what is an astronaut? Mm-hmm. We, know we don't have these people. But we need to do some psychological testing because we don't want to send someone up who's going to freak out. So it's all pretty, I mean, it is all pretty standard stuff, I guess, if you're a psychologist. I mean, I, I was talking to a space psychologist and it, it is things like the Rorschach test, mm-hmm. which is the, I suppose, the most famous one. I put a nice little Rorschach test in so people can sort of have a little look. But Al did a Rorschach. Al, the, Al, the Apollo astronaut, he did that. Beth Healy, when she went to Antarctica, exactly the same. Had to do you know, psychological profiling to make sure that she's, you know, has that the capability. So, yeah, I mean, they're looked at very closely. In the old days, well, the job description of astronaut has changed radically. In the old days, the Mercury days, Gemini, Apollo, it was about being a test pilot because mm-hmm. you weren't in space for very long. So you needed, you know, test pilots had, a, had that head start because, A, they were already part of the military. Yeah. They had clearance. <clears throat> they were flying jet planes at the ed- you know the edge of what was technically possible, and they were brave and they understood risk Straight and they could crazy. deal with it. Well, not crazy, <laughs> crazy, but they you know they were a type. You know, there's a type of person that becomes a test pilot because mm-hmm. you're you know you're flirting with danger the yeah. whole time. But it's changed now because now you have to be a TV presenter and you have to be good in social media, and you're up there for six months living with people who are culturally very different to mm-hmm. you and you have to be able to get on with people. And so the, the, the job of the astronaut, psychologically, as much as anything, has changed dramatically. You know, it's, um, being a rounded individual is, is really important. It's interesting watching Chris Hadfield's programme on the BBC programme about, about training astronauts. And actually the really revealing test was right at the end when they just sat around and had a beer. And actually, who do you want to have a beer with? Because that's when you really understand people. Who would you want to go camping with? for two weeks in a really small caravan or six months in a really small caravan. That suddenly becomes a, an important thing if we're talking about going to Mars. But of course, there's no booze in space, or is there? Well, there probably booze in space. You'll talk to... It depends who you speak to. You know, if you're speaking to an astronaut who's going out next week, there's no booze in space. If you talk to some of the Russian astronauts, there's probably cognac in space. <laughs> so, but I think that, well, that's one of those subjects that it's quite hard to get a straight answer mm-hmm. from because certainly I think officially the International Space Station is dry. There is no cocktail bar on the International Space Station, sadly. I think on Mir there was probably cognac and, and, and what have you. Actually, my favourite, um, just on the subject of uh, psychological tests, the one, there was a, a Japanese test. Again, it made it onto the BBC programme about training, and it's the one where they have to, have to in, in isolation, they had to fold 1,000 paper mm-hmm. cranes doing origami. And the last crane had to be as perfect as the first crane. And so you can understand why they would do that. It's a Mm -hmm. test of patience as well as a test of skill, a test of not being flustered, a test of being methodical, all the things that an astronaut would need to 
to be. You and I, we'd be fine in space, but it's mm. what happens when something goes wrong. Yeah. You know, if 99% of the time, 100% of the time, it might be absolutely fine. But it's that moment where you hear the hiss and the hull has been breached. What do you do? What do you do when you've got one breath left? How do you, how do you deal with that? I would be rubbish. I would yeah. start crying. I'm panicking and, and already. Panicking just already. thinking about exactly. it. Exactly. You know, and the astronauts I've met, you just know they've got that thing about them. They're dependable. I was actually, it was, um, I was with Tim Peake and we were doing a, an event at the Albert Hall and the PowerPoint, five minutes before we went on, as the PowerPoints always do, it broke or something, couldn't, no one could make it work. And everyone was like panicking. And then I watched Tim. Me, yeah, Tim goes. kind of went into astronaut mode. He was like, move aside. I've you got know, this. And, he, and he just was, he's a test pilot. Oh, my bet. Yeah, he's a brilliant guy. And then I was sort of sweating and crying, getting angry with technology, shaking my fist. <laughs> well, I spent some time talking about space suits. So the cover of the book was a photograph of yourself wearing... Not on the front, suit. that's actually Ed White on the front. No, cover. I don't mean that one, I mean this one. Oh, the back, back There's a back, flap. The back flap of the book, there is a photograph of you in a space suit. What were the circumstances under which that was taken? It's a really weird story. It would take hours to tell you. That suit actually belonged, I say belonged, was used by Mike Fole, who was the British-American astronaut who flew the shuttle and stayed on Mir and mm-hmm. had that famous incident on Mir, which exactly that thing did happen. The mm-hmm. hole was breached and it nearly ended in disaster. Mike Fole's a brilliant, brilliant human being. But that was his suit. That's the Soyuz suit that he goes up on the Soyuz rocket and back down in. It's the Sokol suit, which all astronauts wear. And that actually belongs to a, um, a guy called Art Doola, who's an American, a really lovely guy, American guy, American lawyer, actually, who collects space stuff. And he's mm-hmm. got a bunch of spacesuits. And he, I, I actually borrowed some of the spacesuits, which I was taking, doing talks at schools with. And that's why I, I actually had that one on. And actually, his art's philosophy is, I mean, a lot of the, the historic spacesuits are always behind glass. But the one thing every kid wants to do, and I, by kid I mean myself and possibly you mm-hmm. and, and anyone who's watched Mr. Ben, the cartoon, is put on a spacesuit. Yeah. And so Art's got a couple of spacesuits which have been up and, and a couple of training suits that he lets people put on or put a glove on. And, oh, you know, these are looked after. But there's something very special about putting on a spacesuit, not just looking at a spacesuit. It is almost like the kind of the priestly robes. You become a different human being mm-hmm. when you're wearing a space. You, be- you kind of become that thing. Anyone who likes dressing up understands what that means when you become that thing. And actually putting on a spacesuit is like, wow, not many, not many people get to do that. There's a, a section in the book where you, you spend some time with the, the actual suits of the Apollo astronauts and these are, you know, there's like various crowdfunded initiatives going on to basically restore these things. What was it actually like to be there with Neil Armstrong's suit? Yeah, really amazing, actually. I mean, these are suits you don't touch, Mm -hmm. I should point out. These are suits you don't put on. Those suits were one of the most incredible pieces of engineering of the 20th century. They were designed by ILC Dover, which was a division of Playtex who made bras and girdles. Mm -hmm. And again, how do we? What are we designing for? We're designing a suit to walk on the moon. What does that have to do? Well, it has to give you pressure, air pressure. It has to give you air to breathe. It's got to be robust. It's got to be all these. It's got to keep you cool. It's got to keep you warm. In, the, in the, these extraordinary differences, how do you make such a thing? And it ha- the spacesuit has a long history up to that point, but they were only designed to be used once. These mm-hmm. were one-off garments for astronauts to use once for one day only. The one thing they weren't designed to withstand is time. And so a lot of these suits are now falling apart because they've been sitting in the museum for 50-odd years. The actual rubber bladder inside, the thing that pressurises, a lot of that rubber is hardened. Myself and uh, and Chris Riley who actually did a film about the history of the spacesuit, and we, we went to the back of the Smithsonian where they keep all the suits, and we walked into this huge room, beautiful modern space, and there were all these metal gurneys with these shrouds over, and it was like walking into a kind of forensic scene of dead bodies underneath all these cloths were these spacesuits and there was Al Shepard's Mercury one of the silver Mercury suits lying there absolutely beautiful and there was Charlie Duke's suit that he wore on the moon absolutely covered still in moon dust and it had just been in storage since 1971 and they were doing some work on it and we were looking at it through the microscope actually looking at the fibres to see how that very very abrasive lunar dust had had affected the the suit and actually learning about the material science particularly the, the, the white stuff on the top which is called beta cloth seeing how those fabrics the new spacesuit designers can look at that and see okay well this works how does brass zip 
<laughs> and rubber and beta cloth work together. And you can see lots of discoloration 50, or, or of 50 years of time of just sitting there, what's actually happened to the suits. But they are the most beautiful objects. And you look at the stitching. I mean, I got my camera out with a kind of macro lens and I was taking pictures of the stitching. Absolutely precision stitching. And these, was, these suits were hand... Well, they were machine stitched, but hand stitched as well by women seamstresses from Delaware who would have been stitching women's clothing and handbags and boxer gloves and there's a lot of there is some archive of them working and it's extraordinary watching these women work and it was so precise and so detailed and they the suits were x-rayed to make sure pins hadn't been left inside them and and, and remarkable remarkable objects and I always think when we look at that picture of Buzz Aldrin on the moon the most famous photograph probably in all human history or certainly up there, certainly the most famous photograph of the 20th century, you're actually looking at a, at a piece of engineering, a manufactured mm. object, and that is the ILC Dover A7L spacesuit, which really is a wearable spacecraft, and it's an extraordinary thing to see and to actually look at. You know, it is like, it's, like, it's like looking at a, an insect that shed its skin. It's like looking at a cocoon of a, of a butterfly, this sort of empty shell, this human shape. It's quite eerie. And you look at it and you realise where that's been and why it's so dirty and, and who was in it. It's an amazing thing. It's quite, yeah, very, it was quite emotional. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Dallas Campbell, and we're talking about Ad Astra, an illustrated guide to leaving the planet. And Dallas, we've just been talking in awe about spacesuits now perhaps something slightly more prosaic i want to talk about the um the evolution of food in <laughs> space what astronauts have eaten from the apollo missions to what the what the grub is like on the iss now it's pretty good on the iss now yeah i think it's really good They've, we've learned a lot over the over the last 30 years and long duration space flight but there's it's interesting because there's all kinds of cultural differences as well mm. so the russians will have their food and the, the Europeans will have their food and the Americans will have their food for obvious reasons. But back in the day, you know, when first people were going up in space, the sort of Gemini missions which preceded Apollo, it was proper toothpaste food that we imagined mm. space food to be, squeezing things out, gelatinous food cubes. And space food has been something that's been constantly researched since the beginning of human spaceflight. What is it that astronauts eat? And 
as we go even further, if we go back to the moon and onto Mars, again, what are we going to do? Are we taking our food with us? Are we taking a big packed lunch? Are we going to try and grow it? And obviously we are doing that now. We're growing lettuce and, and all that kind of thing. But just now on the, on the ISS, it's got really, really chefy. So famously, Tim Peake went up and Heston Blumenthal is designing him, you know, bacon sandwiches and curries. And it all, it's all, it became part of the story, actually. It was really, it being very, you know, as, as our obsession with food, chefy food at the moment is here on Earth, it's, it's sort of found its way into the International Space Station. It's basically now the most expensive restaurant at the end of the universe, or some inserts Douglas Adams quote. But I actually put a recipe in the book. Um, mm. uh, Torsten Smith, who's another Michelin-starred chef, very respected chef, did some food, a bit like that for a Danish astronaut. Mm-hmm. And he made these amazing little, almost they look like Ferrero Rocher, these little chocolate space rocks, he calls them. And inside, they're hollow. Inside, the astronaut's family had written notes of support, like kind of fortune cookies, and hidden them inside. And I've got the recipe for, for those in there. Actually, right the two days before we went to print, I still had a blank page. And I was trying to call him up, send me the damn recipe. I couldn't get all I got is out of office email. Eventually, he came, this kind of flurry of emails came with, uh, you know, photographs. And, and so, yeah, and but it's a great, it's, it's a big question. What are we going to do? Are we, you know, as we go further, where do we want to go? Mm-hmm. Do, we, do we want to go beyond Mars? Unfortunately, the human body, we need feeding. We need mm-hmm. looking after. We're very... We are fragile, sadly. But my favourite space food story is perhaps back in the day, Gemini 3, John Young. Two days before his launch, he went to... There's a restaurant, Wolfie's Diner, is in the Ramada in Cocoa Beach in Florida. Bought a corned beef sandwich, took it with him. <laughs> you know, stuck it in the leg of his pocket. And during the mission, just sort of whipped it out. And of course, mission control, like, what the hell are you doing? Because the last thing you want is crumbs... Presume well, no one really knew. Well, the, mm-hmm. Is this bad? Is corned beef sandwich in space bad? <laughs> Who knows? But they, you know, they were they actually were testing different foods up there. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking about Apollo, which was to come. But yes, yeah, so, but it sort of fell apart. So he shoved it back in his pocket. I, I put the transcript actually in there. <laughs> him and Gus Grissom. The sandwich, I believe, is in the museum, a museum in Indiana, in sort of frozen in aspic or in plastic or something. Forever, forever remembered. I want to get us on to talking about going further afield, but before we're able to do that, there's an in- incredible picture or illustration, I guess, in the book about shows all of the sort of space junk that's up there that's yeah. sort of like you know in sort of low orbit. What sort of, what sort of things are up there that are, that are sort of and what does it well, do? Like, what's the danger of that? To, to well, the everything's ISS? whizzing around there, twenty five thousand miles an hour. It's but you know it's not just dead satellites and bits of metal. It's it's bits of even flecks of paint. Mm. You know, stuff is going there. You don't want to get hit by things. I mean, back in the day, sixty years ago today, there was one thing up there. Mm. You know, it was Sputnik. Uh, but we send a lot of stuff into space now. A lot of satellites. A lot of a lot of junk. Even things like I think it was. There's um, I think Piers Sellers, the astronaut, dropped a spatula, I believe. I think it's come back down to Earth. My favourite thing that was up there, I think it was also come down, was a thing called Suitsat, a Russian spacesuit, which has passed its sell-by dates in the Russian part of the space station. They, they put a radio transmitter on the helmet and just threw it out. So there was this human-shaped spacesuit, empty, with this Sputnik beep, 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 broadcasting things, ham radio thing, falling around the Earth. And you could sort of tune into it and listen to it. But I put a picture in it because mm. it's such a bizarre sight seeing this human shape falling around the earth it's a really bizarre thing so all kinds of things so but there's all kinds of initiatives to clear it up because as we rely more and more on technology in low earth orbit that becomes more and more of a problem so tracking space junk is very very important you know and the the, the international space station can can move up and down in case there is something and of course this was made famous in the film gravity when (laughs) you know it gets hit and then blows up. So yes, if you're outside doing a spacewalk, you don't want to get hit by something that's going ten times faster than a rifle bullet. Having now made it sound even more incredibly dangerous than it already is, it is dangerous. Space travel is really dangerous. <laughs> that's the thing. The great. I mean, I'm quoting Chris Hadfield again in his that wonderful BBC program of called Astronauts, and he makes that point right at the end. It's really dangerous. You, you know, it's still sitting on riding a rocket into space and staying in space. Bad things can happen. And you've got to be able to sort it out because no one's going to come up and sort it out for you. Well, despite it being so incredibly dangerous, this book is supposed to be a guide for the, uh, I guess, for the layman if they want to go into space, how to do so. Mm. And indeed, there has been now a number of 
private citizens, shall we say, who have been into space, hasn't it? Absolutely right. They've paid a lot of money. These are wealthy individuals who are, for various reasons, wanting to, to have that astronaut experience. The one thing I would never call them is tourists because they don't go for tourism. Mm-hmm. These, are, these are highly trained individuals who take it upon themselves and, and go up there and do science and do outreach work. So this isn't, these are not joyriding people, people like Richard Garriott and, and Dennis Tito and, and such. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there haven't been anybody up for a while, but uh, there has been a few people who've bought a, bought a seat on a Soyuz. But that's not, you know, you don't just turn up and sit on a Soyuz. You do all the training, mm-hmm. you do all the training that all the astronauts do. So you're going to be in Star City, you're going to have to learn Russian, you're going to have to do all the, all the medical tests. And if you flunk, you don't get your money back. You know, that's it. <laughs> you know, you cash in advance. <laughs> but what is the, the sort of plan for the future? Because, like, you know, people like you said, Elon Musk yep. and like SpaceX and stuff, and, and obviously like Virgin Galactic, there are these ideas for space tourism, literally. Okay. Um, let's talk about, I guess, what those. What the ships are going to be like? How, yeah. How's that going to work? We, what, so here are your options. Mm. If you want to be a space tourist, that is going to happen. Virgin Galactic obviously has had setbacks. Any big, any big engineering project has set, setbacks. Um, I believe they're talking about next year, maybe the year after. Cross fingers. So that is a, a space plane with a with a, or a carrier plane mm-hmm. with a rocket powered plane underneath. The plane takes off as a normal plane would do. Drops the the rocket plane, a bit like the X-15 would have done, and then the rocket plane powers straight up, crosses the Kármán line. Yes, I've gone 100 kilometres, not orbital, and it does a nice big arc, Mm -hmm. like going over the top of a roller coaster, and then glides back down to Earth. So you get your moment of weightlessness at the top, you get your astronaut wings, you see the blackness of space, you know, the curvature of the Earth, you'll look up and you'll have your moments of... And that'll be an extraordinary thing. And, you know, will last minutes rather than days and weeks or months. Uh, Jeff Bezos, the Amazon CEO, has a, a similar project, but it's not a space plane. It's a, a capsule on a rocket called Blue Origin mm-hmm. that fires up. The capsule separates and again does a big arc. But rather than gliding back down to Earth, it parachutes back down to Earth. And that's an old idea. I, I found some drawings in the British Interplanetary Society of a similar project called Mega Rock from the 1930s I think similar kind of idea so that if you just want to have the overview effect astronaut experience bit of weightlessness bit of blackness of space bit of wow look at that that might be for you Elon Musk announced last year or earlier this year as earlier this year I think that two people have expressed interest on a trip around the moon Mm -hmm. in one of his capsules is that going to happen I, who knows? It's orders of magnitude more difficult. Is it a capsule? Will a pilot be going with them? I don't know. That's all. It's all very vague at the moment. But certainly the Americans, NASA, are also planning a, a, a similar thing with their new Orion capsule. So they are building a new launch system called SLS, Space Launch System, which is the Orion capsule, which looks a bit like the Apollo capsule. Mm-hmm. And that will be a way of getting astronauts to and from Uh, the International Space Station. Boeing have also developed a a capsule called the Starliner. So new transport methods are coming, which will be coming online in the next four or five years, depending on Depending on politics, and depending on money, and depending on what happens in the world, this is the thing. Space agencies are at the whim of political cycles, which, mm-hmm. and who knows what the world's going to look like in twenty years' time? It's very difficult to say. And that's a, that's a point that we are in a, a, politi- a politically difficult time. Also, you know, we're looking at the, a future of like, you know, ever changing climate problems as well. I and mean, people obviously talk about the idea of of just leaving the planet and abandoning it. But you know, before even that, is it even really? justifiable to be sort of doing this stuff well now. and it's, 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 it's we're always going to ask this question mm. i mean apollo days we were it was bloody expensive you know we're all kinds of civil rights protests going on at the time people were rightly saying you know why is this money being spent when it should be being spent on hospital all these <laughs> things that we just that are obvious that, but there was this political situation going on at the time vietnam was happening at the time the last thing anyone had time to do was send for people, <laughs> but they did it because this thing had to be done because it was this is was decided and of course we don't have that we have different set of political circumstances now so i don't really know what's going to happen it's not like there would either be money for space rockets or or not this is the this is the the thing and there is something in our makeup the human makeup is this desire to explore but things i i guess maybe are being scaled down a bit a year ago 
all NASA, or a couple of years ago, all NASA were talking about was a journey to Mars. That was, mm -hmm. you go on the website, that's what you see. Now, today, it's Deep Space Gateway. So let's just part Mars there, and let's talk about going to the moon first, testing all kinds of equipment and things that we need, and really kind of preparing for a longer journey there, given that we haven't been there mm -hmm. since 1972, and actually have either a base on the moon, certainly the European Space Agency are, are talking about a base on the moon, a bit like Concordia in Antarctica, mm -hmm. where scientists can go and do research work, and then think about Mars. So use that stepping stone before the big leap. Um, but, uh, you know, people are, are dead against that. People like Robert Zubrin, big Mars advocate, say, well, if you want to go to Mars, go to Mars. Don't faff around going to the moon. You know, he's very critical of the bureaucracy and the uh, red tape that surrounds NASA. He's, for him, it's there's too much. There's no clear purpose. There's a lot of faffing around. Rather, if you want to go to Mars, just do it. <laughs> you just have to do it. So, but, you know, so these are all the considerations. I can see, obviously, there are costs involved, more costs involved in going to the moon first than going straight on to Mars. But the moon thing seems, to me, just a whole lot more sensible anyway. Like, I mean, it's easier to get back from. I see no attraction at all in this idea of the, you know, Elon Musk's proposed mission to just send people well, off to Mars forever. I, I, depends how you look at it. I mean, some uh, the, thing about, the good thing about Elon Musk's thing is, like, look, we're going to, and he's just redesigned, in fact, my book's already out of date. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, a couple of days ago, the, the announcement came out. You know, a rocket, a sort of one size fits all rocket system that can deliver you to low Earth orbit and to Mars and beyond. Mm -hmm. And he sort of costed it and figured it out how it's going to work. And the, there's something attractive about that. Whether, whether it's actually going to happen is, a, is another thing. And I've been talking to people at the European Space Agency who are like, it's just a load of nonsense. It detracts from the actual real engineering that's mm -hmm. going on etc etc and there are those who say look it's brilliant it gets people thinking about space it gets people excited about space you need people like that a bit like Werner von Braun mm -hmm. an actual character that people can kind of rally around and, and get behind things I guess the thing about Elon Musk is he's a difficult man to bet against because he has revolutionised rocketry you know SpaceX and the Falcon 9 is an amazing bit of kit and mm -hmm. he's lowered the cost of rocketry because you now have the first stage that returns to Earth. So, you know, these are these are the things that people in this world are talking about at the moment. But, you know, there is a, there is a touch of the showman about Musk. And then he ended his talk because now we can go from London to New York in half an hour. I remember talking about that in the 1970s with the hotel and, and hypersonic planes and things. Like, is that going to happen? I don't know. By his own admission, he says, look, this is, you know, this is, this is not going to be easy. This is, you know, looking ahead, but... One final thing then. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not sure if I'm going to see this, the, you know, widespread and cheapen of space tourism in my life. I think I've passed the, the chance of ever becoming an astronaut and NASA are not answering my emails. There is a chance I could go into space when I die, though, isn't there? There is. There is. Well, as well as the, as well as the big rocket flights, tourist rocket flights of Bezos and... Richard Branson. There's balloon flights as well. There's a couple of balloon projects that can take you not into space, but to the top of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. so you're not going to be weightless, but I think one of them does have a dedicated cocktail bar. So you can sit there on the top of the atmosphere, have a gin in it, and kick back. That's pretty nice. It also sounds nice and sedate. As exactly. Well. <laughs> I like that. But yes, if you die, your ashes. This is what you can do. You can. You, there is various various companies now that will take your money to put your ashes on a, on a rocket or a mission or some of at least some of your ashes anyway and, mm -hmm. and you can reunite with the cosmos as you were meant to be stardust to stardust mm -hmm. there you go I do find that a very attractive idea I must admit I, I don't want to see not yet a few, give it a few yeah years. I've got a few years time your yet. death with an exciting space mission <laughs> and then think ahead oh, that's a good point just to finish so I've been talking to Dallas Campbell we've been talking about his book Ad Astra an illustrated guide to leaving the planet which is out now from Simon and Schuster Dallas thank you so much for coming in and talking about it it's been great You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.